welcome back to the Dark Side Live podcast. Tonight we've got a bit of a change up. We're gonna have a, we're gonna have Andy come on tonight, um, but obviously he's not feeling very well. Uh, so we're gonna have uh, Mark Condy come um, on um, in Andy's place there. So Mark's just jumped on there straight away. So what we'll do is get this straight away. We'll get this rolling um, and we'll get straight in the conversation. So once Mark um, presses the request button, then we'll get straight in the conversation. Um, but like I said, um, Andy will be on hopefully next week uh, we'll get him back on um obviously change of plans um but these things always do happen anyway so just gonna get this connected just wait for this connect up hello mate all right yeah good mate you go yeah yeah good good how's life yeah not too bad uh Covid's making things uh, exciting as always. Uh, <laughs> Usually do, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> for, uh, a little, for a little bomb in there, isn't it? You know. Yeah, I, I always like to make things uh, awkward. So, uh, yeah, mar- marital life's not going well. But uh, other than that, no, it's pretty good. Oh, happy days, man. Happy days. Now, massive thanks. For, you know, obviously, late notice there, um, but appreciate coming on because obviously we were going to do this like obviously next week, and um, we brought it forward. Um, but for yourself and that, um, and I, we've spoken quite a bit over the time anyway, um, and then obviously for the posts and everything else. Um, but really, like I say, very free flowing uh, for the podcast itself. Um, but what it is is like if you just want to jump in there and just give everyone like obviously a backstory for yourself there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm from uh, a town called Ashbourne in Derbyshire. Um, joined the army at 16. wasn't wasn't really a bad lad, but you know I was mischievous. Um, never really had any direction. Um, bought by mum, stepdad, working class family. Um, joined the army at 16, like I say. Uh, was originally cat badged Remy in training. Um, went to HR Basingbourne in 2006 um wasn't the best recruit by any by any means i was probably in the bottom third um and looking back that's probably where i, I probably started to experience anxiety for the first time um passed out of basic training uh soon realized i didn't want to be in the remake and recap badge to the queen's rollers ours um, cavalry regiment, uh, main battle tanks, main trade. So I went to Bovington, moved to Germany in 2007 uh, in Senna Still only 17, uh, turned 18 and deployed to Basra, Iraq uh, for my first operational tour. Um, we were in an outpost in the city really quiet really um you know i'm not gonna sit here and be a bit of a walt uh <laughs> not a great deal happened a couple of rocket attacks um then i considered you know doing my four years and, and getting out um but there was still one thing hanging over my head and that was afghanistan um you know i couldn't really justify leaving without without going I just, yeah. I just knew I couldn't live with myself I know that sounds a bit egotistic but it, you know you I think had, that's like trying to prove something to yourself you still had someone to prove that like you'd already you'd done Iraq and because like you said yourself it was quite quiet that period because was the main invasion had already happened I mean you think that was three years after three four and four years it must have been uh, yeah. since the invasion of Iraq so um it was like kind of quiet down I know by the time it was it 2008 it was kind of like the withdrawal um, time, wasn't it? So really, yeah. you you hit that quiet period where it, it really has happened. And like saying, do you think it was more like you felt like I had to still, you had someone to prove to yourself that you had fulfilled that? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, people in the army will tell you cavalry and guards uh, are renowned for, for bullshit. Um, yeah. uh, it, the, the, with the rap being quiet, we're getting fucked around a lot. Um, and I was becoming quite disillusioned with the military. Um, so, you know, Afghanistan was, was in the news after 2006 yeah. of what was going on. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think it was, it, it sounds bad because, you know, you, 
be careful what you wish for and all that. But Afghanistan was what a frontline soldier goes joins the the military to do. Uh, do you think it was? Do you think it was everything that you wish for? Really, if you're if you've trained to a role, and it's a bit like I know myself being obviously Royal Navy. Even when we did go into Iraq, and obviously mates who did go um, at that point. They kind of was like, well, you're on a ship. It's not as though, yes, you've got obviously be mindful of like, the, you know, missile attacks. It could be, you know, even submarines were still, you know, in the area. But it was like, you kind of think for a frontline soldier, you, that's what you train for essentially is to go frontline, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I started making my way through the, the rank structure. Um, I was told I'd be commanding out there. Um, so as a, as a cavalry soldier to, to command on a platform, which was, was Warthog, which obviously the upgrade from the Viking, um, yeah. it, it was it was testing myself. It was the biggest test I, I could have chucked to myself and I had to fulfil that. Um, so I, I deployed on uh, Op Herrick 15 uh, with the Warthog group, which was quite a good role really because instead of just being assigned to one PB or uh, one AO, we, you know, we were assigned to the RCR group, um, working with BRF and the Afghan target team and shadowing um, a couple of the SF ops. Um, so it's, you know, really interesting role. Um, and then sort of the reality of Afghanistan hits and, and shit starts going down and then you start... Yeah. Fuck! This is this is fucking real. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you think it's like because like you say yourself, you can picture something in your head and you could think, yeah, this is what I want. This is everything that you want. And and it's like until that time comes, till the first round goes whistling past your head, to the first like mortar lands, the first you know IED goes. It's a like you say, it's it's everything's in kind of role play mindset almost until that point. You can train and train and train, and but you won't really know. And you know until that first round, you know, it's fired and you're kind of like, right, it's like the training kicks in. But that's what, like, when I've spoken to a lot of people, I've served both Afghan and Iraq, and it's kind of like you can train and train and train to, as much as you want, but until you put into that actual situation, that real-time situation, you'll never know. And I think that's the greatest test you can really face, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, you, you, you can have black rounds fired at your old day and yeah. you're not going to get hurt. Um and it was sort of the first time you, you wear these out-of-body experiences. Uh, and we were contacted uh, in a place called Yakshal. Um, it was quite a heavy contact. And it was one of the moments where, it, you know, it was fucking close. You could see the fucking rounds hitting in front of you. Um, and time slowed down. It, it was fucking yeah. surreal. Uh, yeah. And it's one of the... You know, it's one of them times when people say, oh, time, time does slow down. And, and that was the first time I ever experienced it. And it, it, it's just like your body just flicks into overdrive. It just starts to go through the motions. Uh, and like, you know, you're scared. You know, any, uh, anyone can say they're not scared. But it's up to them if they, if they say that. But mm -hmm. for me, I, like, there is a fear. And it, it, that's the drug, if you like, of... Yeah. of of overriding that fear and that starting to engage. Um, and that sort of, that moment, I think changes your life forever. Your first ever contact. Um, I don't think life's ever the same after that because you, you're exposed to this adrenaline rush that can never be replicated. And yeah. um, I think when things start going wrong for me on Civil Street, it, it was searching for, feelings like that which can never be replicated yeah because i know there was that post you put out obviously i i, I kind of read the post and straight away i've seen it because i mean like i said i've spoken to a lot of people who served from both you know theaters of war there and areas of operations and it's that adrenaline rush it's that that rush like you said you can't replicate it you can do everything you can outside the drugs cage fighting any kind where the adrenaline's there but you'll never replicate that environment because it's like uh, the way I and you know yourself, the way I put it across was that it was, it was like the world's biggest adrenaline junkies. Yeah. When you're when you know when you've got that and it is like a drug because you because you're in that moment of fear, but it's that moment of fear that keeps you alive. 
because you've got to like keep pushing forward. You've got to keep, you know, fighting forward, you know, put as many rounds down as you can, you know, suppress the enemy. It's, it's that moment where it's like make or break, isn't it? But then once you start, it's, you kind of, the more times it happens, the more your brain switches off almost in one way and switches back on, but it's looking for it. And then afterwards it's that, that big, like I said, that's like a adrenaline rush. It's just, it's like this massive flow of like dopamine in your system. And it's, it's that kind of environment. And I know that, like I said, it was like kind of like the adrenaline junkie, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when I, when I got back from Afghan, then a few mates went over to South Africa. We did this huge bungee jump in Durban and, you know, it's still scary, but it's, it's, it wasn't the same. Uh, you know, I've been out on motorbikes doing silly speeds. It, you know, it's not big and clever, but, yeah. Yeah. and same again, you, you, you get the butterflies, but it's still not the same. Um, and like, I think a lot of the issues with, uh, with lads suffering, um, is, is missing that. And, you know, I've I've never taken heroin, but you look at these lads and, and, and they take heroin and you think, you, you know what that's going to do to you. You know it's going to destroy you. Like you've seen it destroy people's lives, but they still take it for that hit. And I think with squad is, um, you know the risks out there. You know that you, you, know, you could end up whacked or, or getting hit, and, but you still crave it. And they'll yeah. search for it, and it's just unexplainable, really. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because I think I know when I, when I got to a point where I knew what I wanted, I know I wanted to, like, obviously, when I wanted to transfer out, because I found it was very, like, to myself, it was a very mundane job I was doing, and I, I was a natural adrenaline junkie. I had wanted those, you know, and, and it's like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Yeah, I'm just straight on, straight on, straight on. And I do anything where there was a rush there, where there was that buzz there. And I found it's, it's a very self-destructive. It's that, it, that's that feeling where you want something, you know it's dangerous, but you want it more than anything. And it is like a drug addiction. And I know myself, I mean, I, I did like previously, even before I joined, I did the skydiving, the scuba diving, you know, I've done all everything that I, you know, that I could do to, you know, that I wanted. And then there was like to a point where I thought, right, I want to jump out of helicopters. I don't want to fix these anymore. And then I thought, right, I can either go diver or I can, I'd have to, would have had a left and then join, because uh, I was looking at going Royal Marines. Uh, but I would have left the Royal Navy, join Royal Marines. And then I was looking, don't think, right, do me time Royal Marines, go for selection. Because it was like, I wanted that rush and and it was always finding that rush. And I think that's what hit me hard as well over that time. It's just like, once the knee was bust, that was it, game over. And it was like, I hadn't proved that to myself. And I think that's why I kind of imploded. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's what happened with me. Really, you know, I, I wanted to transfer out of um, the cavalry. Um and, you know, as the military does, it makes things as awkward as possible. And rightly or wrongly, they'd rather lose a soldier to Civil Street than to another unit. And, yeah. you know, it, it stinks, but that's the way it is. And, and I sort of spat my dummy out. And I was just like, you know, fuck this. I, I'm done. I'm going. Yeah. I, assume yeah. real, I, assume I left at the wrong time. I hold my hands up and I admit that now. Um, yeah. I try not to regret things because, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I started to realise on Civvy Street that, that things weren't the same. And, and yeah. that's when I started to think, you know, fucking I've made a mistake here, but i just got to ride it out. Uh, perhaps a fault of mine is I'm too stubborn. And there was times I looked at going back, but then I was like, you know, I've walked through that door for a reason. Why, why go back? Um, do you think it was like the ego, like you said, it's, it's almost like you won't back down, you become some way to one way you think it's like ego there is sitting there telling you, well, I, you know, if I go through that door again, go back in and admit that like I've made a mistake, it's going to like, that you, you look weak. You look like I've made this mistake, I look weak. And I think what it is, is like, I've, I mean, I'll be honest here. I mean, I've, I'll still say to this day, when I was in the military, even when you look back and I joined in what, 99, and I did three years at that point. So you're talking 2003 and that was, 2002 was when I left. So that was the April, yeah, April of 2002. And at that point, literally, you think it's only been that period of time where, like, basically, Afghan had kicked off. 
you know, Iraq hadn't even kicked off at that point. And then, like, I still to this day sit there and think, yeah, it was the best job I ever did. And it was only for that period of three years. Because you look at it, it's because you never do a job in the, like, like what you did in the military. You'll never get that. I mean, it's true. Like the old adage, as people say, when we used to, when we're in there, people, all the instructors would say, people pay thousands to do this. And it's like, actually, you've got a point when you step outside and you actually look at what people are doing now, Tough Mudder, all the different courses, you know, to try and get that adrenaline, try and get that near experience. I mean, it's, a, that's, you know, when you look at it and we've had a taste of it and we've lived that, and then we look at back and think, actually, that was the, probably the best job we ever had. I still sit there now and I think I could never do a job that had what that had. Yeah, I, I agree massively. You know, squad is moan and I was uh, probably quite famous in, in D squad and QRH for, for voicing my opinion if I was unhappy with something. Um, and yeah, good, you know, going back, it, I think my personality and my pride and my ego as a downfall stopped me from going back. You know, I was quite vocal on when my, when my transfer didn't go through. Well, the people that get, kept getting lost, I made it quite clear that I was unhappy with the way things were being run. Um, mm. And I was like, you know, if I go back, fucking hell, I've got egg on my face. Um, yeah. And I couldn't swallow my pride, and you know, it led me down some dark and lonesome roads. Um, but it's, it's all part of the journey, I suppose. Uh, definitely, definitely, because I think that's what it is. Because we all evolve. We can look back and think, "Look, I should have done this. I should have done that." But you think you can't change what's happened. You can only change what's going to happen. You know, you could like I always say myself, you can't change what happened yesterday. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I can't change the fact that our boss me just completely went because I could sit there and say, well, if that, that hadn't happened, I could have probably sit with a green lid on now or, you know, or, you know, I could have done this or I could have done that. That's just wishful thinking. It's been, it's gone. That's why I look at it. You can just concentrate on now. And it's always like, I always like to say, use the, the phrasing of the controllables. You can only control, you know, concentrate on what you can control, not what you can't. Everything else is right. Get on with it. Just concentrate on that route. And I think it is we can become quite self-destructive when we, we get into that mindset of that. But it's about like looking at it and thinking, yeah, you could kind of identify there's an issue. Because it was the same as myself and alcohol. I found that I was very, very self-destructive with alcohol. But then like as years have gone by now, I can have a drink now. I mean, I never drank for like 15 years. And then I start and I, then now I can sit and have a drink. And I'm probably, after two drinks, I'm like, I'm not bothered. You yeah. kind of learn to control that, don't you? You kind of like, the older you get, the more you kind of look at something and think, that, oh, I can control that now. Yeah, and I, I, I'm on that pathway at the minute. You know, I'm 20, 20 months T-table now. Uh, yeah. Not because I was becoming violent on alcohol, uh, but when I was drinking, uh, you know, I tried numerous things when I left the army to, to try and rediscover that brotherhood, uh, join the rugby, yeah. etc. Uh, and I, I found myself drinking after a game of rugby. Um, lads start asking you questions just out of curiosity more than anything. You know, yeah. what like, what's this like? Um, and you're starting to bring up dark memories mixed in with alcohol. Um, and yeah. I found myself being a loner at the end of the night, just sat my own uh, drinking into oblivion etc um so you know i i just got to a point where i was like i need to knock alcohol on the head to 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 stop these negative thoughts um i think that's a good thing like you said there it's because once you've you've lived it experienced the same as myself and i lived it and experienced it and i stopped for a long period of time once i started like now i can have a drink and i can take it or leave it but it's recognising those parts where you're thinking, if I drink that, I know this is going to happen. It's kind of like it is because it is a depressant. So you kind of think, I know this is how I'm going to feel or this is how I'm going to end up feeling. So I think what it is, is we all naturally evolve, but it's learning from those parts. So like for myself, I know, like obviously I, I went from being a heavy drinker to then like, you know what I mean? Falling into that hole. And it was like, I'm glad I did get, you know, like quit drinking for that large period of time. Because I think it would have become more and more... It was going to that point, it was getting more and more self-destructive. 
But it's about now when we look back, it's that life experience where you kind of have evolved from it. And then you can think, actually, I've learned from that. And then that's that part where you start building your confidence again and you start building that pride again in yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, obviously I joined, when I joined at 16, I was taken away from um, the lifestyle that sort of my peer group were living back home. Um, yeah. So like the drug scene had, had completely bypassed me. Yeah. Uh, and then when I came out and, you know, I didn't... I knew things weren't right, but I, I never accepted there was an issue. And, you know, yeah. I'm not proud of it, but it happened. It's like chucking cocaine up my nose and stuff like that. But I don't I don't regret it because it's, you know, the first time I, I took cocaine is the first time I ever opened up to somebody and said, you know, the, the, this is what's fucking going on in my head. Um, it gave me that confidence to, to speak to somebody and... The way I look at it is if I'd not taken the substance that night, then would it still be locked away in my closet? Would it still be eating yeah. eating me? Um, you know, it started to become a bit of a problem when I was just going to family do's and nipping away to the toilet. But yeah. uh, I think what it is, is it's like the saying then because we can fall into that part where it's like alcohol, drugs. It's something to always like cover it. It's always just like kind of put a blanket over it and just think it doesn't all like that plaster effect, put a plaster on it, you know, just put it there one side. And it's kind of, you're kind of always covering this over. You've got to literally like open that trauma up because I can identify with that because we can all, like I said, drink, take drugs, can do all that. But it's literally all we're doing is keep pressing the self-destructive button every time. But like I said, there was a positive that came out of it. Like I said, if you hadn't done that, would you have opened up? But it gave you that confidence where you could start opening up and then it started like, right, okay, then we'll move on to the next part. So I think there's always like, there's, it's a yin and yang, isn't it? Yeah. There's always that good and bad. And, and I look at it, it's like, you know, it's a bit like people who like said earlier on, people who say, I can go into like a firefight. I can go into like anywhere where, there's, where your, your life is on the line. I'm not scared. Then you're a liar. I'd say to the face point blank, you are a liar or you're an absolute psycho. There's only two people, you know, you're either a complete liar in that or you're a psycho, and that's it. Everybody else, we're all going to, like, even, like I said to you, you're on a message, I get to the point where I can have this little bit of anxiety going on before our podcast, and I'm thinking, I think it's because it's that adrenaline start rushing through. Like, I've said it, I've kind of learned that anxiety to me, it's, that's my adrenaline. That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, because it knows you're kind of, I'm excited for this. Yeah, and, you know, going back to a firefight, it's one of them moments where fear's a good thing. You know, fear keeps yeah. you up. Uh, it's, it's completely natural. Uh, and with the fear, you start taking calculated risks and, and you know, you're on a two-way range, you know, it's not safe, but yeah. it starts, you start then thinking, well, if I do this, I'm exposing myself massively there and etc. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of them where you start to to use these natural emotions to to your advantage. Same with anxiety. You know, I played a lot of football um, when I was as a kid and, and in the army. I was horrendous for nerves, horrendous. Yeah. But it, it was. I just wanted to do the, the very best I could. Same as a soldier. I'd get nervous. Yeah. I'd leave camp because, you know, even reading a map, you'd be like, please don't fuck up. Please don't get this wrong. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that's what it is? Because you're put on the spot. It's that kind of put on, your, on the spot moment, isn't it? When you're asked to do something. But that's also a confidence builder because I found that myself. I mean, I remember I was like, what? I would have been 20 at the time. And I was told on the day, right, there's your seeking. You're in control of that now. So basically, if anything goes wrong, you're the one you know who's going to get in trouble for it. So I would literally, I, I, if I hadn't signed the this um, chip, the pilot couldn't fly that helicopter. If I hadn't been, I had to literally, I was in control of that, and I was like, right, if you don't do this, 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 your neck is on the line. And you think that amount of responsibility, or the helicopters were coming to land on, 
I would then be directing them, shut them down. I'd even do the walkarounds, obviously, like all uh, if it was like weapons transfers, everything. I was in control of that fuel, like refueling. So I was making sure there was obviously safety involved. You've got so much responsibility put on you. And do you think that's what it is? We're all going to have that anxiety, but it's how you deal with that. It's almost like people see it in a negative form anxiety, but I see it in a positive form because I look at it as that's something that's, you know, it's meant to happen, but it's, it's testing your nerves, putting you on that spot almost, but it's also building confidence in yourself. Yeah. You know, you listen to, to professional sportsmen before they go out to perform. Um, Kevin Peterson, for example, you know, the, the England batsman, he comes across as the most confident, arrogant cricket player probably of all time. And yeah. then hear him speak about before he went out to bat and, and he was he was nervous. And so I think the nerves are a good. I think the nerves are there basically because you want to perform to the, the very best of your ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, with me, I think the nerves when I left the military, it um, it sort of imploded on me, and and my self confidence it just hit rock bottom. Um, you know when things in civil street started going wrong because I'd never, I'd, you know, I'd never failed a course in the military and stuff like that, and. and yeah. Rightly or wrongly, the military tell you that that you are better than the outside world, uh, and yeah. you sort of become arrogant to it. And then when things started going wrong in Civil Street, I was like, "Yeah, but I'm a fucking veteran. Like things can't go wrong." Um, yeah. Do you think you feel like entitled? You're entitled, like once you'd left, you've done your service. You're like a veteran, like you said. It's almost like the military, and you do hear people like it's almost like you are the best of the best, and this confidence is built in you constantly. But that's almost like a when you take it into a civilian side, a lot of that could be like almost looked as false, false confidence because it's like outside people are going to be thinking, okay, right, can you do that job? And it's but it's also balanced between the two. You they can instill it in you, but it's how you react to it and how you carry yourself forward isn't it because you can go on like a, a, a professional level where you can conduct yourself at a professional level or you can use that fo- almost like that confidence like you said bordering on ego where the ego then takes over and thinks i'm better than everybody else or i should get that job because i've done this do you think that's quite a culture really where there's like that entitlement um for me personally you know i can't speak for you know I can't no no yeah say yeah every veteran um but yeah, I definitely believe that. You know, I was 20, 23 when I left, um, done two operational tours. And I was just like, you know, I'm 23. Uh, yeah. I've done all this. You know, I've led patrols and operations, um, been to the, you know, the most hostile operational environment that the, the British Army have been in for however many years. Yeah. Um, and I can remember going for promotions in a factory that, that I worked at, which, you know, I hated the job, but kept going for these promotion jobs. And uh, not because I felt that the role I was doing was beneath me, but I felt, you know, I'm a, I'm a natural leader. I should, you know, let me progress, let me progress. And when I wasn't getting the promotions, that is when problems started coming out. Um, I'd start, start getting, you know, disruptive. Uh, do you think I was like, because I've, I've had that feeling of that, where you kind of think you've, you've got that much confidence in you, I guess I can do that role, I can do this, I can do that. But once the reality hits in, where somebody might be able to do something in a better form or somebody else who's got a bit more experience than you in a different format, then you start seeing the cracks appearing. And that's where the confidence, that's where you start falling like in that hole, isn't it? That rabbit hole. And then you start falling. And then it's almost like you're taking yourself down there because you start beating yourself up. And it's like it falls into that self-destructive where you kind of think, right. And it's, it takes a lot to pull yourself back out there. Because I think what it is, is you've always got to remember that I think everybody works on different levels. But it's ego is a, it's quite a destructive form, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. My, you know, my first job when I left the military was uh, with JCB. Um who were renowned for taking agency staff on, and then and then they drop them at the first opportunity, which is what happened to me. Yeah. Uh, went in after about twelve weeks, and they basically called all the agency staff in and went, you know, you can go. 
Um, and that was my first experience in Civvy Street of basically losing your job. Uh, and I took that as a personal attack. Mm. Obviously, it's, it's finances. It's, it's, it's how the, the Civvy world works. Uh, then, um, obviously, picked up another job pretty quick. Uh, and he applied for the ambulance service. Um, and I got all the way to the end of the recruitment process and then got told I was unsuccessful. And, I, you know, this that was the first time I'd really felt failure. Um, yeah. That's when, you know, looking back, that's when the de- I started getting really depressed. And I was like, you know, I failed everybody. I failed my family. I failed myself. I'm an embarrassment, et cetera. Um, you think it's because, like, because, like you said, because you you joined up from a young age, so you've had no real life experience. You're put into an environment which literally they stripped you of everything, rebuilt you with this, like this confidence almost, like this, like you are better than anybody else. You're this, you're that, and it's like because you'd never really had that taste of of society. You know, you kind of was right. This is it, and it's built from that young age. By the time you went back into society. It was like, so all them years meant nothing and you just went crashing down once because you'd never experienced it before. Yeah, I'd never seen Civil Street and you know what it's like in in the forces. You've got yeah. the vision of Civil Street being all milk, honey, you know, yeah. beautiful women everywhere, all this shit. And, and it's not that. Uh, yeah. So th- this this dream was sold to me about Civil Street, and I was like, "Fuck it!" You know, I've never never had a go at it. Yeah, I was disillusioned with the military. Um, let's go and have a look at it. Uh, and I soon realised it wasn't what I thought it was. Because um, when you go back on leave, you you six weeks of of going out. People are making the effort to go out with you because you know it's a rarity of you being back. Um, things are good with your, your girlfriend or your wife because it, it is with me living in Germany as well. I wasn't back every weekend. Yeah. And then that six weeks obviously becomes 52 weeks yeah. and things start slowing down. People don't want to go out with you because they've got their own life. You start arguing with your, with your missus. Um, you start to realise that civil employers don't really give a shit what you've done in the past, um, which isn't their fault, you know, I think, and I, I especially when I first came out, I was terrible for you know, civvies don't fucking understand me. Civvies, they shouldn't understand us because we chose to go into that world. Exactly. We don't understand them, um, and I don't think we ever really do. I think once you, once you join any any other services, you're exposed to this different world, yeah. and I don't think life is ever ever normal again. Um, you know what is normal but I don't think you ever pick up the civic corporate world again I think what it is as well because I know it was quite a funny uh, quite a bit of a a laugh really in one way I chuckled at it I was like I've said it before when I was doing a direct marketing job and I know it was really bad weather it was proper I come in soaking literally and I walked in and just as a crack I turned around and went bit wet out there to the boss and that was it we straight out it's just like why are you being negative i don't want any negativity coming into this building and i was like it was a joke but it's because that dark humor or literally you know ranting at something or you know ripping something and thinking you know something like that you're probably taking a piss but to him it was like you're being negative in it and i'm thinking you don't see the humor because when for ourselves if something's going really really bad you do it by the black humour, you, you rip at everybody, you know things are good if people are like gobbled off and stuff like that, but when you go quiet, you know things are serious. And it was just like, it was it was something I'd never experienced before, and I was like, whoa, just chill. Kind of like, you know what I mean? I'm only having a laugh. And it just, it was my first experience, I really was like, I don't understand this, why did, you know, it was a joke. But then I realised myself, it was probably because I'm so, and that, and that was years, I was like, you're talking a good 10 years after, a good, 16 years actually after I left and that was it you know but it was still within us yeah definitely I, I can remember um, when I was lorry driving for a local builders merchant and, and you know that job probably saved me um, yeah. I knew the boss uh, from you know playing cricket as a youngster with him um, he was obviously quite a bit older than me um, you know and he gave me a chance and 
I remember somebody threatening me when I was doing a delivery and you know what it's like in, in, in the forces. You deal with confrontation with violence, basically. You, you're yeah. not, you could have a punch with your best mate and, and yeah, you exactly. mate in five seconds after. Um, and I, I got into this heated discussion with this bloke who, who then threatened to smack me. So I was just like, you know, get off your, get off your fucking property, get into the road and, and let's dance. Uh, yeah. Obviously, reported me. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, luckily, uh, my boss knew what I was going through. It was when I just started opening up about having PTSD. Uh, well, yeah. I've been diagnosed at that point, but yeah. I'd opened up that things weren't right. Um, you know, and he basically just says like, "What's going on?" All this and. I lived for that another day with that company. Um, but definitely, it's it sort of old habits die hard. And, and I think some habits that we pick up never do die. Um, like I think that's a good thing about the culture. I think there's a positive part of the culture that is, is still going to be there. It's the humour, it's the joke, and it's the banter. It's Everything's there. Or like, you know what I mean? It's like we could have those films with really dark humour and, and somebody would think, something wrong with you but you kind of like chuckle at this but yeah. it's 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 almost like we no matter how things go wrong or how and i think that's another thing as well i know a lot of people have said that if you think about it in no circumstances we could laugh around people who are the same mindset as us we're in the same exactly same situations so we could laugh and joke on i mean i was telling somebody like even last night about the time when they got hit by a helicopter blade you know spinning helicopter blade it was literally i was an rfa argus and it came into land it was a baby pilot came into land and were on the back end. But the thing is, there was fuel bowsers and all this stuff that could go bang. And he literally got a bit too close to the shed. And I was like, all I remember was somebody just grabbing us and hearing run and literally dragging us out of the way of this. And luckily, the, the pilot had pulled back, the more experienced pilot, but he pulled back on it. So the rotor blades didn't clip. Now, can you imagine if that had clipped, I'd have been ping missed. There's fuel bowsers and everything there. But we could have had a good laugh after that happened. Yeah. You know? And that, that's the thing when you put in circumstances or situations where things can really, really go wrong here, but you're actually chuckling, you're laughing about it because it's that adrenaline once again, it's that adrenaline. Now, I think a lot of it, and you've probably experienced this, now, coming out of that environment, going into a civilian environment and trying to do that with other people who'd never had that experience, do you think that's where people kind of go down the rabbit hole as well because they miss that and haven't got their people around them? So almost like a support network. And I think they feel very, very lost in that area. I think it's, yeah, I think it's difficult at the minute because, well, not even at the minute, I think it's for the foreseeable future. You know, the yeah. world is so PC. Uh, and, you know, the dark humour that, that we all live on, it, it's yeah. not easy, is it? <laughs> you know, it yeah, it, exactly. Uh, and that's what gets us into trouble. But you don't mean it offensively. Um, yeah. Well, that's it. I think I'll say is, is have you noticed that? I would say, if you use a if you use certain words and you're like, and to you it's normal, it's like it's like it's just normal. It's normally there, but and then soon other people and they're like, you can't say that. And it's like, well, it's only a word. That's yeah. how it's implied. But you, like you said, you can come across as though you could say something to someone, and it sounds like you're really you're just giving them the world of hurt there, and you're having a laugh. And that's it's how people's perception of it is, but it's how it's implied. But I think what it is as well is everybody. I think it's how we've. I agree. There's a lot of things that are. It's right why it's changed, you know. But the problem is though when you're in violence like that. And yes, I can agree because I think I was me and he were chatting about this as well. I know he was he was saying a bit as well on different things. But it, the problem is is how it's implied. We apply it. It's not meant in a malice way or a racist way or anything like that like i said myself i know there's a lot of things happening and i said at the end of the day we all bled the same color yeah definitely. simple as you know and, and, and you know you speak to to people of different backgrounds in the military and and you don't see color you don't see no. um nationalities or you, you know welsh lads are mm. half uh, mm. it's not you don't mean it offensive it's going to see such or uh, jock or you know it's like it's, it's everybody uh yeah jock paddy whatever and and you know our regiment recruited from from uh belfast 
Yeah. <laughs> and the amount of slurs that you used to, to hear chucked around by them yeah. over there in don't trust him, his eyes are too close together, he must be a Catholic. And yeah. you know, they say it in a, as a joke. That it's, yeah. I think people don't understand when you're in situations when everyone's put all the chips in. Yeah. You don't fuck where somebody's from. You, you've got the yeah. same intention of getting everybody out there and, and completing the, the, the mission. You know, that's it. That's it, isn't it? It's it's getting the mission job, getting the job done, and I think that's what it is. And I think that the problem is, is have you? I've this may be my own opinion, but I think myself, with a lot of things, the way things have gone wrong now, I think they kind of they've made it diverse. They've they've made that division themselves. It's like let's put a label on this, let's put a label on that, let's put a label on this, and I say, yeah, but by you doing that. It's you're making the problem worse. You're making it, uh, you know, and that's what the problem is. Like, I remember that, even going back, there's a lot of things. And the problem is, yes, I do agree. There's a lot of things that have become unacceptable, and it so should be. I agree with that. But in some things, but also, like you said, the whole culture, the military culture, it's never changed. And for it to change, it would change the whole dynamics of the way teamwork works. But it's, it's a really hard subject, isn't it? Yeah, uh, you know, I had a phone call off a lad who I've not spoken to for probably six, seven years. Just last week, um, he grew up in, you know, in the south of England. Unknown number rang me, answered it, and the first words he said were, "Hey, up, you big northern cunt," yeah. <laughs> and emphasised northern accent. You know, Derby's in the Midlands; it's not even up north. But, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, when does when does that become offensive? Exactly. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it really is. Uh, but I think what it is, is it's, it's like you're saying, it's how you imply it. Because, I mean, I remember we had one lad, and he was actually, I, don't, I think he was actually part German, but actually on the back of his, on his team shirt was K-U-N-T. <laughs> it was actually, it was, he says, I'm the German football player. And I was like, everyone was like, yeah, get it on. Like that, but, that could be for us. It was a good laugh to everybody else who'd seen that. If you think, if you if we imagine taking that and putting it on the shirt, and then going onto it like it's into a town somewhere for a be- few beers of the lads, how many people are going to get offended at that? Like you've got that on the back of your shirt. Exactly. It's, but it's 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 the bread and butter of of the military. You know, yeah. it's one thing that was I, I always remember like day one of training. You know, that humour starts and and. Well, even in the recruitment office, you start hearing yeah. dark, dark jokes. Uh, I remember taking my oath of allegiance. You know, all the parents are there. And as we were walking in to take the oath, this colour sergeant from the infantry going, it slams to the slaughter and all that. And it's, yeah. you know, that's when it starts. And, and that's just how, how, how we are. That's how we cope with things. I remember in Afghan, uh, my boss got blown up in front of us, um, survived. And I remember... Dirty dashing up to him, realizing he was, he was all right, alive. Um, big split like down his, his face, his teeth were, were missing. Um, <laughs> he rolled over. I was like, "You're right, boss," and you know he was out of it. And I, I just looked at him and just went, "You look a right cunt." And, it, <laughs> and he, he, I just remember him going, "Oh, you know," because everyone called me Ted, and after mm. like that, my nickname was Ted Bundy because my surname's called. Yeah. That's offensive, <laughs> but, yeah. and it, you know, I just, I just remember going off, you know, fuck off, Ted. And then it was army balls there. Have I got my legs? I went, yeah, your legs are there. Have I got my bollocks? And uh, yeah. have you seen Big Daddy? Yeah, that, yeah. You know when uh, he puts his mate in that chokehold, and he, you know he falls, <laughs> puts him in the sleep hole, falls asleep, and he taps yeah. him, in. and that's basically what I did. Yeah. In, in the fucking dust of Afghan, tapped, <laughs> tapped him in the bollocks. I was like, "Yeah, they're still there, mate. Don't worry about it." And it's just how we survive. It's yeah, definitely. Because I, I think with something like that, I don't think see like that that could. It's like a stress release. It's everything in one, isn't it? It's like that dark humor kind of covers all angles. It's like kind of. You know, the stress, the panic, the fear, you know, it stops people from freezing up. It stops people from, you know, just stopping there because it can paralyze you. It can be, you know, especially like you said, 
it's situations like that. If someone's just been blown up, and you, like what, and you're thinking, right, I'm going to pull this person back. They're going to be dead. That's the first thing you think: Are they alive still? And it's that part where the person's still alive and everything's still working and he's still got everything, but it's now turned into a joke because that now that's the adrenaline's kicking in, and it's so kind of like that's your release valve. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, some of the things that that some lads have seen, the fucking horrific. Um, yeah. Gets had a. On uh, Veterans State of Mind the other week, you know, he had the, the, the rifle soldier who... Uh, oh, Justin. Yeah, yeah, Justin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he said, like, a couple of days before he got whacked, his best mate had said, I'm having them gloves off you when you get smashed. Yeah. And then, you know, when he got whacked, his, his best mate were borrowing up to him and says, come on, then get your fucking gloves off. And, and... <laughs> Exactly. Is that is that kind of thing, isn't it? We kind of put our... We think... I'll have them gloves. I'll have this. I'll have that. It's kind of like, you know, you're straight in for kit, aren't you? You're like, right, I'll have this if you're gone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I thought that story was fucking hilarious because it just, that is how our mindset is. And uh, I thought that story was perfect to, you know, to summarise us. That's how dark we are. That's how twisted we are. Yeah, exactly. Because it is like, like you're saying, it's like, <laughs> thought about guess. Because um, I know yourself, you made a little uh, guest appearance on there with Gaz and um, Big Joe, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think, looking back now, had that been five years ago, would you have done it? No. 100%. No. 100%. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't until, um, what would it have been? I'd probably been suffering, well, getting treatment for two, three years. Um, and it wasn't. Yeah. I had the birth of my daughter yeah. that I did to, you know, tell everybody that the journey I'd been on, attempted suicide, etc. Yeah. Because I just thought, you know, that feeling of, of becoming a parent w was a feeling like no other. And I didn't want people to go down the road of suicide, etc. Um, you know, the week we've had, this week with with veterans it's it's still going on people you know people at the top aren't acting on it um do you think on on that note i know it's like i don't jump in there really but like so i know i did a video earlier and i kind of like what's kind of said because people kind of said oh it's another veteran and we know obviously you look and think that's 41 so far but then i kind of look at it is that's everyone that that could that's you know I think what it is, is it's something that needs to be looked upon as not just specifically that's an issue with this or an issue with that or an issue with this. There's no easy fix for this. And that's not just highlighting one area person. I think it, it's everybody, isn't it? It's that, it's that whole area. It's how it covers everybody, really. It doesn't just cover... I mean, yes, obviously, like, we probably, like see a lot of this because obviously we're, people would follow and et cetera and military and that, and then another veteran and, you know, and I don't want to see anybody else go. I don't, but also, like I said, when you're in that headspace and you know yourself, when you're in that headspace, you don't want to talk about it. But also I think it was Gaze who had said something really, really, it was, it was accurate. He says, instead of don't talk to them, don't talk. You can talk too much and make it worse. Can't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and you've, you know, sometimes you probably just need somebody to just go, is everything all right? And, you know, they'll brush you off. Yeah, I'm fine, you know. And then five, ten minutes later, they'll then reapproach you and go, you know, can I have a word? You know, I'm not all right. Yeah. Um, you know, any suicide's fucking horrific. I used to think it was selfish. I used to think it was yeah. weak um, until I ended up down that road myself. And then you realise... It's not fucking weak. It's, you know, it's not. You just feel there's no other way out. Uh, yeah, you're feeling like completely your headspace. That's the thing people don't realise. It's you, you kind of like tunnel visioned. You don't see anything to the left yourself or to the right yourself. And you don't want to hear anything people have got to say. You just want to rant in one way, but you also want to be quiet. It's very, it's very almost like on bipolar scales. It's very like, you know, you want to be left alone, but you, you don't know what you want because your head's not in the right place. But what it is, is I think... I look at it it's like, yes, we can raise awareness. We can do this. We can do that. We can do all this stuff. And yes, fantastic. And like, I look at it and say, like, what real treatment is it? It's the greatest treatment we can give to people is to listen and support. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, just even just even say somebody, if you haven't spoken to them for a while, 
how are you doing? Simple as, you know, that. Or, you know, if, you know, and I think that's what it is really is. Even if it's just a couple of words, just send a message across, oh, I just thought I'd ping your message, you know. And I think that, that changes the dynamic massively. Instead of somebody, even if it's just a couple of words, I think instead of someone, oh, how are you doing? As soon as somebody, and I think that's when people as well shut down, because as soon as you start talking a little bit, people want to try and take over that conversation and try and fix it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, sometimes you just got to be on receive it while somebody just offloads, you know, a 10 minute run. Um, yeah. Sometimes there is no answers for somebody. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think with, with veterans or serving soldiers as well, um, I think because we're exposed to extreme levels of violence, and death, you become so accustomed to death yeah. that, you know, the NHS is, you know, I'm a massive fan of the NHS um, and it does a, an awesome job, but the waiting list, which obviously aren't their fault, you haven't got that long with a veteran, I don't believe. Yeah. I think if a veteran is suicidal, you've probably got 48 hours to yeah. get him out of that mindset. Uh, or her out of that mindset you know we've, we've lost a couple of, of females as well haven't we the last few yeah. um... but do you know something what it is that I found is that I suggested this last year and I even um, said it to Glenn Horton as well I came up with a project called Bravo Zulu and essentially what it was was we've got ten, about £10 million in, in the Covenant Fund Yeah. so you think of what £10 million can pay for Look at all the veterans who have leave who are basically leaving the military from whatever service it was, coming to do like qualifications. Use that money to pay for them to do qualifications, even counselling, psych, you know, psychiatric work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because they relate better. We all relate to each other. So you can essentially take somebody from the military, put them into a role on civilian street, and you know, use that money to pay for the qualifications. It's there to be used for things like that. And then maybe, and I think that's another thing as well. If you had more people who are veterans speaking with veterans, it would work a lot better because it can relate to each other better. That's one of the biggest things I think a lot of civilian people, uh, military say, they can't relate to civilian, especially when it comes to like medical area, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, you know, the first time I reached out for help, it was with a, a civilian um, woman who'd never served. Um, and arrogantly and ignorantly, I just fucking dismissed my session. I was just like, you know, it's a waste of time. You don't understand me. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until I came across um, Cormac Doyle, who, who was a major um, with the Bridge Charity, yeah. that yeah. It started really um, taking a positive effect with me. You know, I, I don't know. It's, because I know Cormac, he was um, he's been on uh, on the show as well, and the on Geza show. So yeah. he was like, uh, yeah, he did a, he did a podcast because I know that was a really really good one. That and I know obviously Helen Barnett as well. Um, yeah. Hel like obviously you know, obviously know each other, and like obviously through Cormac. And and I think what it is is that it shows especially that someone who's previously surfed, you can kind you can relate to it. And I think that's what it is. They need to really if if they want to give people help. If people, because a lot of times it doesn't really start the show until you've left a good while and start, things start tripping up. And a lot of that could be identified as being financial. You know, it could be just leaving and going to this like civilian life where you've got to start paying bills. You've started, you know, you've got to do your gas, your electric and all these things you've never had to do before. Everything's provided there. You know, it's like, like as you know yourself, as soon as you get paid, you're straight down the pubs with your mate and you don't care about the rest of it. No. Because everything else is covered. But once you leave and go on a civilian street, this is where it, people struggle. And a lot of it, do you think it's like a lot of it could be stemmed by financial with that big change as well? I think it's just the loss of identity more than anything. Yeah. You know, um, my regiment was probably 500 men. And you know the majority of, of, of the guys. Um, and you've got this identity. You know, everyone's got their own personality. And then when you come out onto Civil Street, you, you're nothing. You, you're the same as everybody else. And um, for me especially, that loss of identity, same again, you know, I'm, uh, I don't believe I'm an Arab. It, everything 
I'd be caught on, um, yeah. which was the only thing I knew from 16 to 23, was yeah. taken away. Nobody cared what I'd done or um, what courses I'd done, what tours I'd done. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, that's when things started going wrong. When, when I, you know, I was fighting it, the, the, you know, started becoming aggressive. I was with a social hand grenade because I was still trying to prove to myself that I was this person. Um, and it wasn't until I accepted that, you know, that person, even though there's probably traces of, of him that still that live inside me, um, yeah. the majority of it's gone. Um, yeah. You kind of, you have to find that new identity, isn't it? Because, I mean, really, that's what I found myself. You've got to kind of rebuild yourself. Like, you know, from going from, like, as, as Radders would say, Dave Power to Dave. You know, yeah. it's like kind of you've got to, you've got to adopt this new, like, kind of, right, this is me, this is my new identity, this is who I am. You know, from, like, like I said, from Dave the Power to Dave the Siri, you know, you've got to adapt this. And I think a lot of people have that hard, have that hard time kind of letting go of that. They're kind of keeping that onto that identity. I was this, I was that. You know, instead of that, I am. I'm, you know, I am this now. I am going to be doing this or I'm looking to, you know it's always that forward way rather than always keep looking back because 20 30 years goes pretty quick I mean it's been like 20 years since I left and yeah. I look back and I think you know it feels like yesterday it really really does I mean for yourself I mean out of all the experiences all the like obviously the years have gone by I mean if you were to give like say one piece of advice to anybody what would it be um don't regret anything you know even if it goes wrong mm -hmm. Um, something made you make that decision whether it be right or wrong something made you make that decision and you know even if it starts going wrong just you know live in the moment um, I was shocking for living in the past and, and letting the past eat away at me absorb me uh, you know um, um, you know, it's, it's probably cost me my marriage etc but I've got to move on from that, and that's also, you know, that's where I am in life at the minute, going through a separation um, and a divorce, and it's basically just, just living with it, you know, trying not yeah. to regret things have gone wrong, why have they gone wrong, understanding why it's happened, and, and trying to move forward and still be the best person I, c I can possibly be. Yeah, because I think that's where accountability really does kick in at that point, where you know it's gone wrong, okay, can't change it, got to accept it, move on. And it's always about holding yourself accountable and thinking, right, you know, and I think what it does is that's that life experience, because a lot of us do want to just like shut it off and think that didn't happen, but you're only going to do is lie to yourself. It's that going to be that constant lie, isn't it? What's all yeah. you're going to live is that lie. If you keep lying to yourself, have you really ever lived? That's what I've always ever said. And that's basically what absorbed me with my mental health. Um, I lived a life for five years. I was like, you know, I haven't got mental health problems. The, you know, it's weak to have mental health problems. And then I just fucking realised it was starting to really take a massive effect on my life. Um, and it is acceptance. Even, you know, you might be a bit embarrassed, but how long are you going to be embarrassed for? It's better to be embarrassed for five minutes than to be swinging from a, from a tree or you know overdosing or I know people are in bad places and stuff like that but you know there's always a way out um, and I think that would be my advice to veterans you know there's a lot of us that have suffered um, attempted suicide and, and been unsuccessful I hate how that's worded you know being successful and unsuccessful it's not it's not a test it's you know you're at the fucking end of your tether um yeah exactly because i think that that's what it is really is like you said just you pinpoint something quite well i know we're just coming down the last minute there um but it's like about that success and you know unsuccessful you always look at it, have you succeeded or you've failed and it is it's there's no test really everybody's in the same kind of that uh that's it. Everyone's just living the same thing. We've all been, you know, had some experience or experiences off it. Now, I mean, this is something we could we could speak for another couple of hours, you know, on, you know, and you look at the whole dynamics of it. But like, really, it was just like, obviously for yourself, that was a massive thanks to obviously to coming on there, Mark. You know what I mean? Appreciate obviously jumping on 
as well. A quick notice there. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, the work you're doing is awesome. And, you know, I know it's having a positive effect on people. It has a positive effect on me. Um, so no, you... I appreciate that. Appreciate that massively. But we'll catch you later, mate, all right? Yes. You take care of yourself. All and... right, we'll speak soon. See you later, mate. Cheers now, mate. Yeah. Bye-bye.